0818-715-815. Hello, good afternoon. You're very welcome to Liveline. Colm O'Mungoyne here. You can get us on joe at rt.ie for your emails. 51551 for a text. 087-484-8888 for WhatsApp or 0818-715-815. Brian Farrell, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Colm. How are you? Good. Yeah, take us back to uh, to 2010. You were working in Peru. What happened? Colm, the... Uh... We have a bit of a delay on the line there, Brian, but uh, fire ahead. Tell us what happened in Peru in 2010. Yeah, apologies about that. Um, I'm not too sure. My line seems to be fine. Um, I went to Peru in 2010 to travel around South America, and I was working for an Irish bar, Stroke Hostel. Uh, so I just okay, uh, really, really... We're having a bit of an issue uh, with your line here. First of all, so. I'll tell you what, Brian, we're going to try and get your line back up again. But in the meantime, the reason you called in was because you heard uh, yesterday's programme and on it, Elaine was talking to us. Elaine. I did, yeah. Yeah, he, uh, Elaine yeah. Had, had a mystery issue. Uh, do we, yeah, we, we're going to have a listen to Elaine because this, this is what happened to her. She doesn't know what's wrong with her because she's awaiting uh, a diagnosis. She had a seizure back last autumn, the first she'd had, but they've become weekly incidents ever since. And uh, here's the impact it's had on her life. I actually feel like I'm a burden on people now at this stage because I have to arrange a lift to be collected and brought home. Anyone that goes out with me needs to know a care plan, to know what to do if I need to bring an ambulance and stuff. If I'm at home alone, the next door neighbour would know or my husband would be on a short walking day or he'd ring me every two hours or so. So, uh, Brian, you heard Elaine there yesterday and it, it took you back to the time, as you say, in 2010 when you were working in Peru. Tell us what happened. All right. You might recall the, uh, Elaine who was talking about there, she was talking about the impact on her life yesterday. So she'd ha- she's gone to having weekly episodes. She was told when she went in after her first seizure that she would need to see a consultant to have a diagnosis. The only place uh, that could give her the diagnosis, she was told, was Beaumont Hospital in Dublin, which is a centre of excellence for neurological uh, ailments. So she went there, but she was told that it was going to take about 10 months before she would be able to get a firm diagnosis and be seen by a consultant. Now, as a result of this, Uh, She can't be prescribed medication because even though she might have a suspicion as to the neurological disorder that's behind what ails her, in actual fact, she doesn't know for sure. So she has no one to write her a prescription on the basis of any any type of a scan, an ETC scan is is what she needs in her case. But as a result, uh, the impact on her life has been huge. So... Uh, you've just heard there she feels she's a burden on people because she can't drive. It also affects her ability to work. Uh, She was telling us that any of her job choices would be limited to looking at uh, a place that would occur along her husband's route to work. She would effectively have to be dropped off and picked up, but there would also have to be people... uh, There would also have to be people who would... um, pick her up from there, but also monitor how she's getting on. If she was in work, they'd have to stay in constant touch with her. Or even if she's on her own at home, they would have to check in on her on a regular basis to make sure. Or at least that that there would be a neighbour who would have a level of comfort 
or competence to know what to do if a seizure kicked in. So some of the things that would affect her, she would find herself not being able to speak, even if she was in the company of somebody else. She would find herself undergoing a seizure and unable to articulate exactly what was going on and be able to say to the person what help she needed, whether or not she'd bitten her tongue. Uh, and so this has been going on, as I say, since since last August. And it could be another 10 months before she finds out what's wrong with her. And as you know, as, as, as you've heard from uh, from Brian, this kicked off um, a memory of what happened to him the first time back in 2010 when he suffered uh, from this. We're going to get back to that because we had a problem with that uh, with Brian's line. But we uh, we have another uh, caller on another topic on the line. Joe Lyons, good afternoon to you. How you call him? How are you? Not too bad. How long has your love affair with golf been going on? Uh, since I was a child, Colin. With sport in general, really. My first love would have been hurling, but I wasn't good enough to make it on on the on as a even as a club hurler. Never mind a county hurler with, with my club Saint Rhinus and awfully back in the nineties. So uh, I turned to golf. Right. So and, you're, you're uh, saying you're saying golf. Even all these years later, golf, in terms of your passion, still plays second fiddle to hurling, does it? Ah, uh, well, 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 definitely. Uh, we're a bit, well, hopefully, we're on the way back. I see the Offaly hurlers have, have put up some good performances the last couple of weeks. So, right, yeah. But obviously, Offaly golfers doing better in terms of silverware in recent years. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, and I, I would. Uh, I was lucky enough. I was priv- privileged enough to to to, to play on an Irish um, home international team with Shane Lowry some years back. He was. He was quite a bit younger than me when I was playing for Ireland uh, at, at men's level, but uh, obviously he went on to great things after he winning 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 the Irish Open as an amateur, and then obviously going on to win the Open Championship. So uh, yeah, we're, uh, we, we, there's, a, there's actually a long tradition of, of some, you know, you know, Offaly has produced a lot of good golfers down the years. Was uh, short Graham. Um, Tullamore Moore is also a professional golfer now and played for Ireland. Justin Kyo, another one in Bar, and uh, I'm sure I'm missing people here. But uh, yeah, no, uh, too many, pick. too too many to mention. You you, you can yeah. say, if you, if just, and <laughs> uh, and some some you can just take it as a given. People people know who they are. So uh, you, your own, uh, do you want to tell us what age you are now? I'm fi- I'll be I'm 51. I'll be please touch wood. I'll be 52 in May. Right, so you had a solid guts of forty years before uh, before you hit fifty uh, playing golf. Yeah. You, you weren't tempted to retire at that point, were you? After a forty-year no, career. If I'm honest, Colin, golf has been—you know—golf's my whole life at this stage. I work in the golf uh, uh, um, industry. I, I, I was a social care worker for twenty years or twenty-five years. But uh, I moved and I set up a golf travel business some time back. But golf is my life. It, um, it's everything to me, and it's been very good to me. Like I had some great times playing amateur championship golf down the years, and um, I suppose as I was, you know, I, I actually won a monster stroke play championship in 2019. I would have been 47 at the time, but really that was a blip. But you know, I did. I was becoming less and less competitive at men's event because the young fellas are just too good to be honest. So right. you know, I'm lucky. Golf is a sport that kind of. <laughs> The kind of um, you know has a bit of regard for its senior citizens and the seniors golf um, community is quite active and it's it's quite competitive and even, I suppose if you look at I'm sure if you talk to Patrick Harrington about his exploits uh, 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 winning the US Seniors Open last year and the US British Open you know I suppose I'm lucky enough that I'm involved in the sport that provides competitive competition for age, people in their age groups and 
you know, it's been, it's, as I say, it's my life. It's, I, I compete at golf, I work in the golf industry. And uh, when, When's the last time it, you bought a turkey? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's been a while, all right, Colm, yeah, yeah. Although I haven't been playing that much winter golf the last few years, but... Uh, um, no, yeah. Um, I, I enjoy. I, I enjoy. I must say, I do enjoy competing, and uh, a lot of my focus actually the last while. And I think somebody quoted stats to me there some years ago. Now there could be all, all sorts of reasons for it, but golfers live a little bit longer than the general population. That could be down to exercise, or it could be down to socioeconomic status. I don't know, but right. Uh, or maybe, maybe, maybe just the desire to get the handicap down uh, well, is just just keeps them going for that bit longer. Well, well, it's my more, it's a big motivation for me. Uh, I suppose to be. I don't mean to be so flippant about it, but like I, I suffer with some. You know, I've, I've a little bit. I've an arthritic condition, and I, I started doing a lot of gym work to maintain my. To generally, the motivation is to be good. At, is to be competitive at golf for as long as I can be. Uh, but of course, the add-on benefit to it is I'm. Uh, I, I'm feeling better. I've lost. Uh, you know, this winter in particular, I've lost a good bit of weight, and I'm more flexible and. I feel like a young lad at the minute, Colin. Right, honest. okay. But anyway, you, you've, as you say, once you were approaching 50, there were young lads coming up, snapping at your heels. On the amateur scene, did you find yourself falling uh, slightly down the competition rankings uh, as as you approached 50 when you were playing in, in with the young fellas? Yeah, like I had a lot of... I had relative success. Like, I won, I, like if I said I won the Monster Stroke in 2019, I was 47 years of age. And I was lucky enough to hold a winning putt at a... For, for Connacht at an interprovincial championship in 2021, which doesn't happen that often either. But definitely, I wasn't up uh, up on leaderboards at the men's events uh, as often as I had been in previous years. And it was a struggle. I was really finding it a struggle to compete at that grade. So my my, my motivation, I, I really was looking forward to hitting 50, to be honest. I know right. most people dread, dread the... the Hitting fifty, but I was I was looking forward to it. I must say. Yeah. So for anyone who, who's who's on for what happens age fifty, if uh, if you like knocking a ball around a park. Yeah. So so I, like so I mean there, as I said the golf championships they have specific golf championships for senior golfers for fifty years and over. So it's, there's a bit of an anomaly there actually. In your in Europe it's over fifty. In the United States and the UK it's over fifty five. So. I was lucky it came early enough for me. And I once I hit 50, I knew if I played well at an event, I had a very good chance of winning. Uh, but, what, but but if I was playing at a men's event, if I played really well, I might be lucky to scrape into the top 10 or something. So there's, there's much more fun winning something, Colin. So than, you, you uh, now are one of those young lads, relatively speaking. <laughs> you, now you know the feeling of what it's like to be one of those young lads snapping at the heels of uh, of Joe Lyons, age 49. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So how does and, that and, feel? Well, it feels great, like. But the, the, what's going to happen, though, is... <laughs> I mean, time stands still for nobody. There's going to be guys coming in on 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 my heels afterwards. Uh, so we'll have lads turning fifty this year, and you know, um, I just have, you know that's part of my motivation really to try and stay as fit and healthy as I can over the coming years to try. Because that'll be the elder statement at, at at the seniors in a few years' time as well. Colin. Right. So, well, you're, you're, I suppose you're also dealing with people who maybe are only taking up the game. Uh, 30 years maybe after where you took it up people who are in their late 40s early 50s who maybe played field sports for a bit longer uh, than, than you did yourself but decided golf was something they'd do afterwards 
not really call them to be honest. Most of the guys playing in senior championship golf have been playing competitive championship golf all their lives. Right. So you're not, not you're not you're not you're not playing against the um, just the casual weekenders anymore, no, are you? It'd be competitive golfers, so um, like the standard is pretty decent. Like for example, last year I had the opportunity to go and qualify for. I, I played in the British Open last year, the British Seniors Open, with the likes of Padraig Carrington, Bernhard Langer, Vijay uh, Singh, you know, some of the greatest golfers the world has ever seen. And, uh, you know, so to just to get to compete with those guys or qualify to compete with those guys, and I beat guys, say, who would have been on a, 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 say, who would have competed professionally on the European Tour or the PGA Tour for years who tried to qualify for that event. And I got into the event ahead of some of those guys. So, the standard is quite high. Like it's not as if, I'm not just teeing it up against somebody who only took off golf a couple of weeks ago. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> so I mean, what what do you play off? I play off plus three. And were you ever a scratch in your time? Well, tr- plus three is three shots better than scratch. Oh, three shots better than scratch. So you're actually, but you'll have to pardon my ignorance on this one. You can probably tell uh, I, I'm I'm not a golfer, although I, a number of family members would be. But plus three, you actually get. Uh, it's kind of a, a sort of a you have to advantage everyone else who plays against you to the tune of three yeah, shots. So, so basically, the way best way to explain it is most people who play golf, they're you know club golfers would generally have a handicap, and if they t- it, if it takes them eighty shots to go around the golf club, and they have a handicap of ten. You take play eighty minus ten, it gives them a net score of seventy, and the vast ninety nine point nine percent of golfers would have positive handy or you know positive handicaps the negative handicaps are plus which is a bit of an anomaly too if i if it if i go around the golf course in 70 shots i have to add three shots to my score and why so, is that i mean i can understand why somebody who hasn't you know in just in terms of the i can understand why somebody goes around in you know 70 and they minus 10 of it or goes around in 80 and it's minus down to 70 but how do they work out uh, how do they work out it, your handicap well, if I'm going, let's say, for example, if I if I consistently shoot scores that are three, four, five under par, it's a pretty complex handicap system. But it's based you're at, it's based on it's your eight best, it's an average of your it's your eight best scores out of your last twenty rounds. And if you are consistently averaging under par, your handicap is going to be plus. There's very few amateur golfers that 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 have plus handicaps. And to be honest, there's in a, in a strange way, I played say. Used to have the Hillary Go- well, the the Hillary Golf Society before Christmas. They used to have the Lynx Golf Society, and you would where where the top amateurs would play with some of the pros. So once you turn professional, all the professionals are scratch. But you would you'd wind up playing at some of these charity functions where I'd have to be giving professional golfers a three shot head start before we tee off on the first. And what's the incentive then to? You know, I'm not saying anyone kind of holds back or whatever, you know, I mean, people probably are, are aware of the term bandit, somebody who keeps their, their handicap yeah. in the other direction artificially high. But, I mean, what's the incentive to get where you are now? Is it just the challenge? I would, to, be, to be honest, I, I just love the game. And I, I, for me, the pure form of, like, I, I, I'm not competing for, more, the majority of golfers are competing for net prizes, uh, where net prizes are... are the captain's prize will be a net prize, the president's prize. I compete in gross, in scratch competitions where handicaps don't come into it. So, for example... All right, so there uh, are some competitions where they set you at scratch rather than you well, having this three-point like disadvantage, is there? The Spanish seniors that I won at the weekend, that's scratch for everybody. So, 
if that was a net competition, you'd be adding three scores to my score, three shots to my score. But because it's a scratch event, everybody plays off scratch. And you mentioned so there that you, you've gone off the winter golf uh, because of uh, an arthritic condition that you have. But, yeah. I mean, how, how are you at a stage where you end up having a positive handicap and you're, you're kind of battling arthritis at the same time? I mean... What what are you doing to overcome the effects of the arthritis and still be playing golf to that level? Well, I'm lucky enough that the, my condition is not that debilitating, and I was look and I was caught early, and I've been seeing seeing a rheumatologist uh, for the last ten years in Galway. Um, I'm on you know the treatment programs are good. One of the big things for me has been identified. Well, I initially had a had a had a diagnosis of cirrhotic arthritis, and it's now. Uh, it's changed to, uh, oh, there's in addition to that, I, I've had a diagnosis where osteoarthritis in my left knee, my left hip and in my spine. So Is, is that I hereditary? Think, is, I mean, is that a genetic thing, do you think? Or was it caused by playing, did golf contribute to it in any way? No, I don't think it did. It's probably hereditary in some, but I mean, whether it's hereditary or not, I have it and I have to kind of manage it. And uh, I've been told that, particularly for osteoarthritis, that, uh, like mobility, uh, a mobility exercise regime, whether it be yoga, Pilates, stretching in the gym, all all that type of stuff is really good for us. That there's no re, you know, that that's that's what I've been told. And right. it certainly, is, I've lost ten kilos in the last three or four months. And I would say, um, and if I may, plug my local gym, uh, NRG Fitness in Dr. Karen Galway, right. the team up there have helped me a lot for over the last last month, last two or three months. And you, so you're obviously doing your exercise. It's one thing to go to a physio and be told, do your stretches, do your Pilates, do your yoga, and then it's another thing to, to actually do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, like, I, as I said, my motivation is to stay competitive at uh, golf for the next, for as long as I can, really. Right. Uh, like, I was in Atlanta last year. Um, I went over to play in a competition in the United States so we, uh, we were basically did the best three players from each of the states in America, and they invited uh, Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales to send a three-man team to go over and compete. But anyways, to make a long story short, I won the event, the individual event, but I was playing with a gentleman from uh, 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 Oklahoma who was 65 years of age, and he was still able to hit the ball pretty much as far as I could hit it. And so I asked him what was the secret, and he. He said to me, he said, uh, strength and mobility exercises. He said, he said, once you hit 50, you begin to lose muscle mass. And uh, he said, if you want to stay competitive and stay enjoying life and enjoying your golf, he said, I strongly recommend you get on a strength and mobility program. I took him at his word. That was last October. Now, as you said earlier, I'm the new kid on the block. And sometimes I feel like I'm I'm bullying pensioners that when I go to the over 50s events. Like, but... My my goal is to still be uh, competitive. You know, please right. God, I'll see sixty five and 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 later life. But, I, I'm uh, feeling a bit less sympathy now for you with your positive handicap uh, at this stage. <laughs> seeing as you talk about the competition, but come here. Obviously, look, you, yeah, yeah. As you mentioned, you have the arthritis thing. So playing in a hot climate is a good thing. You won a competition out in Spain um, just recently, was it? I did. I won the Spanish Seniors Championship at the weekend in Spain, and uh, you know, I would say that a lot of the, even though I hadn't a lot of golf played over the winter, I would I'd go to the range a bit, and obviously all the gym work, and uh, um, I, it certainly helps. So we went out last Sunday. The singles event didn't start till Friday, so I got to play four or five rounds before. 
the event. So I got to to, to to practice a bit for the week, and we teed off in the singles on uh, on on Friday morning. And thankfully, everything went well. There were a couple of blips along the road, and I had a, I had a very good round on Sunday, which which helped me win the trophy. Right. Now, the winning the trophy was one thing. I mean, that's that's uh, that's an achievement in itself. But I suppose getting the trophy home was another yeah. achievement entirely. Yeah. Um, you, you got the trophy anyway, and uh, you, you brought it out to the airport with it tucked under your arm, was it? Yeah, yeah. Right at the airport, uh, I had my hard case with my golf bags, and we had the trophy and a couple of a couple of carry-on bags, and we arrived at the airport desk uh, to, to try on the to check on our golf clubs, and we had to wait because the check-in desk wasn't open. So I went back up and checked in again, and I had the trophy there, and nobody said, "Well, you can't bring that on the plane or anything." So I assumed I said I'd just carry it on. So went through all the security checks with the trophy and. Security guards were looking at it and they were admiring it and saying what it was for and this and that and the other. We got to the gate and we were grand. We were, needless to say, we were very, very happy. It was a pretty big event. It was nice to win it. How uh, big was the trophy? What, describe it to the listeners now. What kind of what kind of dimensions and size is it? It's about a foot tall. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, not, that, it's, it's not a... It's wide, though. The handles on it were quite wide. So... And what is it? Is it a cup or is it like a column with a golfer standing on the top swinging a stick? No, no, it was a cup with a couple of handles on it. But it was it was a replica cup, really, like that it was to keep. It wasn't that I had to bring it home, put my name in it, and and get it back to the Spanish Golf Federation next year. Um, if it was, if it had been this, I would have reacted, I suppose, very differently to the the situation that arose at the boarding gate. Right. But well, you, you, you might, you might, you mightn't have got on the flight, I suppose. But anyway, tell you, well, you, so, so you had yeah. your trophy and you arrived up anyway to to the boarding gate. Yeah. So I was just going through the boarding gate, and straight away one of the uh, uh, the ground staff came to me and said, "Sorry, you can't bring that on on the plane." And I was I was sort of flabbergasted, and I was like, "Well, why why not?" And uh, they were saying, "Well, it's against our policy. It's against our baggage policy. You can't." And I said, "I said I'm only after winning." I said, "I said why didn't?" You know, why didn't somebody tell me that at check-in? So, so knowing well, look, you just can't bring it on the plane. He said, if you can fill it in to one of your carry-on bags, uh, you can bring it on the plane. So then at that point, uh, my wife was standing there. So she took her backpack off and she tried to put it into her backpack. And it actually fit in her backpack. But when she went to zip up her backpack... Zip. The, Go on. The, it what w- happened? It, it wouldn't zip up. It could only zip halfway on both sides, but we couldn't right. close. Well, did you take stuff out of the bag? I mean, what was the scene like in the airport? Because I think most people would have sympathy there when well, they're coming, we up, coming up to the gate. And I, I, I say this having been at, at the gate myself. Were you taking stuff out of the bag and trying to fit so, it into the cup and pack it in around so, it? We, 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 we were nearly the last on, uh, the last to go on. My, my, my backpack was already was full to the brim. And uh, so it wouldn't fit in that. And we had two rolling bags, and you know by looking at it, that the cup was wider than the rolling bags. There was no way the cup was fitting in tighter down. So my wife's backpack was the only one. So she had very little in her bag. So when it wouldn't fit in that, and I, I this is where I suppose I got a little. You would you uh, wouldn't have thrown a few pairs of used underwear or socks in the bin <laughs> to make a bit of room for it, no? <laughs> well, I probably could have, but. It, I was a bit frustrated at the time, so I was. Uh, uh, I, like you were I was, determined to get this into the backpack anyway by sho- by trying uh, to shove it in. And but we just couldn't close the zip. So he once said, and I thought once it was in the backpack, I thought, yeah, that'll be grand. Now we, away we go. She said, no, the zips have to close. Uh, uh, and uh, I said, you must be joking me. And, uh, and how close? And how far were you from closing the zip at, at this point? Uh, 
place was about three quarter ways up on both sides of the backpack. Right. So I mean, not not much of a gap at the top. I, I don't think. I no. Maybe you could argue that it might have fell out of the backpack, but I I really didn't think so, to be honest. But anyway. Anyway, yeah, you, you weren't allowed. Bring, you, you, you were. You, and were you, you were offered. You were offered the option to check it in. Were you pay, pay, we pay the no, fee and no. check it in? No, we weren't. We weren't offered that option at, at the check-in desk or the boarding desk. All right. Okay. Well, we. I mean, as you probably as you probably know, we we got on to Ryanair. They say. You you were uh, they were they, they they advised that the trophy had to be fit in the carry bag as you just told us or be checked in on payment of a, of a check bag fee. You dispute that, do you? Well, they didn't. They never advised me that at check in, okay. and they didn't right. at the boarding gate either. But apart from that, I really don't, the last thing I want to do is get into Ryanair bashing. No, uh, for sure. It, anyway, yeah, you, you had to you, because I suppose that I w- we wouldn't call it. where 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 were you flying from? What was the airport again? It's from Seville Airport. Oh, so you achieved the, the miracle of Seville because th- you couldn't bring it on the flight. You had to yeah. leave. You had to leave it on the counter uh, behind you. But where is it now? Well, it's on route to Galway as we speak. To be fair to the people at Ryanair, uh, they were. I. You see, what happened was I was. I got a bit frustrated, and and maybe, and let's be. If I'm honest about it. If I if I waited a bit, maybe they probably would have offered me the option to pay to to pay for it as extra baggage. But what happened was I was getting frustrated when my when I couldn't believe it when they said it wouldn't fit when it wouldn't when I couldn't close the zip in my waist bag. I couldn't believe it said that no can't go. Right. And did you cause I, a bit of a I, scene? But, uh well, there was nobody there to see the scene because the whole plane was boarded. Right. And it was just so maybe some of the but but. Basically, I took the, I took the, I took the, uh, uh, I, I took the cup out of my waist bag, and I left it over on the desk where to check you in. I said, right, so here's what we we'll do, and I took a picture of the, uh, uh, um, the trophy. I said, you can keep, the, you can keep the trophy. He said, oh, we can't keep that. And I said, well, you're telling me I can't bring it on the plane. So then she said, well, she said, if you leave that there, we're going to put it in the bin. I said, I said, you can do what you like with it. I'm going home, and I turned on my heels and I walked down the gangway. And my wife was calling me back at this stage. She said, come, come back, come back, she was saying. I was like, no, I'm going home. Come on. They can send it over. To, and uh, I really didn't care at that stage because... It sounds like you nearly got into a second row then at that point, did you? <laughs> having well, fa- having well, fought already with the people at the desk, it sounds like you were, you were, in the well, middle, you were nearly going to get into one with your wife. Well, there was no... Oh, with my wife. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah no, but my wife was... My wife has a tough job keeping the keeping the lid on me at times, to be honest. So, uh, <laughs> yes. yeah. so, um, and she carries for me in the golf course, and trying to keep the lid on me when things are going wrong in the golf course not easy either. So, anyway, um, we got on the plane, and so I took the pictures, and uh, and I don't want this to come across as big-headed or anything, but I've won quite a number of trophies down the years, and have lots of trophies in the house, and I look from time to time I took them, but. They're not what. They're not really what's important for me. I don't hold a lot of mass on the trophies. The ma- it's the experience, the actual, the joy of winning. The whole like there was thirteen guys from Ireland I think out playing in that event this week. We had a really great week. Very social. We met in the evening for drinks and out for dinner. Seville was a beautiful city. It's just. It, Right. Uh, the whole week was a great experience, and I'll treasure it. And my name will be down as a winner at the Seville. All right. Well, I mean, but you, you say the trophy's on the way to Galway, and you, so yeah. So who's bringing it to Galway? 
But Ryanair, to be fair to Ryanair, I posted, you see, when I posted that picture on social media, this whole thing blew up. And to be honest, the last couple of days have been even more incredible than than the few days. <laughs> the amount of people that have been texting me, because the whole thing went viral yesterday, and uh, Ryanair saw it and said, look, geez, this shouldn't have happened. Look, to be fair, they were following policy, but really, they probably should have let you yeah, on. Yeah, well, they say, in the, they say in their statement, as a gesture, so that the handling agents don't have discretion with the hand luggage cases. Yeah. You were advised the trophy had to fit in the carrier bag, or they say uh, it'd be checked in upon payment, and you declined both and would leave the trophy in Spain. And as a gesture of goodwill, they've arranged for the trophy to be flown from Spain. So you've gone from having been an enthusiastic, what is it, nine or ten-year-old playing golf to kind of losing a bit of faith in it age 49, having a comeback yeah. at age 50 and reaching yeah. the stellar heights now of having Ryanair fly your trophies home for you. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, um, I, I, I'm quite complimentary Ryanair, actually. I'm going to St. Andrews tomorrow. I'm bringing 30 guys to St. Andrews to play golf in St. Andrews at the home of golf. Right. And we recommended the book Ryanair flights. It's actually on our website. We said, look, these are the best flights. Uh, we've two Ryanair flights tomorrow, full of Lions Links customers, and we'll continue to use uh, uh, Ryanair. And the other thing I suggested to somebody yesterday was, well, look, I'm, I, I really don't want to get into bashing Ryanair because right. number one, the question I is, I suppose, do would Ryanair recommend you? Uh, they may not, but I don't mind. <laughs> right. Okay. My, All my, right. My, my, we 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 got to we got to leave it there, Joe. Thanks a million for talking to us, and uh, many many more tro. We wish you many more trophies in in the future, and a good recovery, and plenty of stretching and strength and conditioning. Uh, whatever you're doing, uh, it's obviously working. We're back with more after this. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Colm O'Mungan here, joe at rte.ie, for your text, 87 for your WhatsApp. Paul Ryan, good afternoon to you. Hi, Colm, how are you? Good, you're, you're home safe anyway um, from Manchester. Tell us, how did, the, how did the trip begin? How long had you been planning it? Uh, well, my wife was my both myself and my daughter share the same birthday over Christmas time, so we're big Manchester United fans. And she surprised us with a trip on the twenty fourth of February, twenty third of February, to the Fulham game, which was just last Saturday. And um, we set off on Friday afternoon, myself and my daughter, and everything was going great. We we stayed in a lovely hotel. We ate we ate in a, a restaurant owned by Gary Neville on the Friday night. We breakfast Saturday morning and after Saturday morning we headed to the ground and we we bought some stuff in the mega store. We went to one of the local pubs to get the atmosphere going and we went down to the ground to scan our two tickets and when my daughter scanned for her first ticket, it didn't scan. And how did your ticket go? My ticket scanned. So the other one didn't. So they, 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 the steward pointed us over to the ticket office and we went over to the ticket office and the, the girl at the ticket office said, uh, unfortunately we've been victims of ticket fraud. Um, and, and had you been over to Manchester before? We've been there. The last time we were there was three years ago, just four years ago, just before lockdown. Um, we've been getting our tickets off the same person. Um, and for some reason, this time, my daughter Layla, her ticket didn't go through. Um, like the what, only thing I can is think there any of difference is, in the format of the ticket? So like three years ago, you went over, were you talking well, about... Well, it was a QR pay, code. Pay, it was a QR now. It was a QR code we got this time. This on, time on the phone. And the first time you yeah. went, was it paper tickets or barcodes? It or was what? card. It was card tickets. It was like a Visa card. All right, ticket. so you, you had a physical plastic ticket to go That's in, did you? a physical plastic ticket. All the right. only thing I can think of is if, if Leila's ticket got hacked 
or the same seller sold the other ticket, said the same ticket to someone else and they scanned before Leila arrived to the ground. And unfortunately, column sheet, we didn't get that far. That's as far as we got was the turnstile. And we turned and went home. I asked the, the girl in the ticket office, could I purchase two tickets? Because obviously my daughter was gutted. And she said, I'm very sorry, there's no no tickets remaining. And I, I just asked, it, I suppose it was a gesture of goodwill question. Is there anything you can do? Could you, can you just let us into the ground? We've got one valid ticket. You, you can see... You know, we're genuine. We just have to been, if sure. you can pardon the phrase, we have to been done. And she said, unfortunately, I can't do that. Right. And she um, was, was she sympathetic? She was sympathetic, yeah. But she, she just said, we're trying to, the club are trying to erase ticket fraud. And I said, oh, I understand that. I said, but the club also sells season tickets, numerous amount of season tickets to one single individual all the time. And if a single individual has five season tickets, they can only use one of them. So they're obviously passing them on to other people who are giving them back to them at the end of the game and they've been used for another game and this time just didn't make sense until after it when I realised it was a QR code right. I, I'm not one for technology technology is there's too much hacking going on at the moment in the world and I think we were probably hacked Right. our tickets somehow I mean, got hacked and it, it could be the case that maybe somebody you know you share a ticket uh, They've, as you say somebody could have multiple season tickets they might have you know, put it. How how were you sent? Were you emailed the tickets, or was it we, kind well, of shared I via? Sent, I was a, sent through it. I was sent by WhatsApp. Right, and might they have sent? Might might they have sent the same person two tickets inadvertently, having having meant to send another usable one? I mean, did you get back in contact with the source of the tickets from the ground? I got back in contact ground? with the person. No, I got back in contact with the person, and I was told by that person that unfortunately his name or my name are not on the tickets. So even if he went to the ticket office, there's nothing he could have done. And um, unfortunately, my wife bought the ticket, so um, it was no fault of her own. It was no fault of anyone's column. We were just, we were just victims of a fraud ticket, and and unfortunately, Layla's, Layla's, Layla's trip didn't go according to plan right at the end. Right, and had did the, uh, did the person at the ground say they, you know, this is something they see regularly? I mean, were there other people in the same predicament at you uh, as well, you no, at I, the ground? Well, just in just in hearsay, since I come home, you know, I've I've been hearing off other people. You know, a lot more of this is happening because of the QR code system, because some people are probably able to hack these things. And maybe they're, maybe they're getting a copy of the ticket I had and forwarded it on to someone else who thinks it's their ticket. And as I said, they probably just scanned it before we did. If it was one minute before we did, they were already in the ground because the girl said to my daughter, that ticket's already been scanned. Right. And when you say, I mean, I, I, I don't know whether sort of you, you had the ins and outs of it explained to you, uh, Paul, but I mean, when you say hacking, are you talking about somebody intercepting emails that it would that it was sent on because I mean possibly along those lines yeah right because I mean obviously you know WhatsApp is one of those they say it's end to end encrypted so you know yeah, it's it's yeah. Pre- supposed to be secure messaging at, so yeah. so it can't be intercepted so I mean it 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 it, uh, it may have gone awry somewhere before it was even sent to you did it probably I probably I just I call them we genuinely don't know except all we know is her ticket didn't scan and that the clubs, that the people at the the stewards at the turnstile, you can understand they're only doing their jobs. They just said we can't let you in on a ticket that's already been scanned. Sure. Because obviously the sea was taken. And did you get a chance to talk to the person uh, that that supplied you with the tickets? I mean, you say you had no no issues prior to that, but I mean, did no you actually... issues at all with this person prior to the ticket? Absolutely yeah. none. Uh, absolutely would, none. Would you go to them again? No, absolutely not. The next time I go to Old Trafford, it'll be a physical ticket in my hand. And were they because apologetic about it? No, absolutely not, no. They no. just said, unfortunately, his name, 
or my name is not on that ticket, there's nothing we can do about it. Well, did he offer you and a refund? Nothing, because we've no receipt. You know, if, if we're guilty, if my, you know, unfortunately, my wife just purchased him the way she always did. It, it, yeah. Nobody's guilty of anything. We're just a victim of, of unfortunately, right. ticket fraud. And it's look, with, with, without, without giving, you know, without, um, without giving, I suppose, away anybody's identity, how do people go about buying these tickets? You know, well, if somebody, if somebody I, is... I would a... recommend now, I would recommend now, I've done it before, it's quite a good trip if you go to, go to these tour operators. It's a good trip. Most of them, you, you go by coach on the ferry and they, they, coach, they drive you down to the ground and you stay in a hotel overnight and they actually give you a physical ticket going into the ground. Yeah, although because, uh, I, we, we did we did talk to people who had an issue. There was a, an issue cropped up uh, around the Rugby World Cup, I think, in, in Paris. Uh, last yeah. year, we were talking to people who landed up at the stadium then and, and an issue arose with that. I think it was a um, some glitch in, in the technology there as well. But they were told that their their ticket had been scanned uh, beforehand. And I mean, is there any way of checking whether it was a technological error on the part of the stadium or they, did they just pretty much give well, you... Well, to, to be honest with you, to be honest with you, as you can probably understand their feelings at the time, you know, it's very hard to take your 16-year-old daughter up and say, come on, we've got to go home. And when, when we got to the hotel, Layla's quite a strong kid. She doesn't really break down at all, if ever. And when we got back to the hotel, she, it just got the better of her. And we were due to come home at 21.40 on the Ryanair flight. And I said, it's a pity there's not an earlier flight. And she done something with Layla's character. She went onto the phone and said, Dad, there's a, there's a flight there at 6.30. Could we try and get that? Because I'd like to just go home now. Right. Just gutted. And... Just absolutely, I mean... Yeah, complete anti-climax. The whole weekend was building up towards yeah, it. Look, Layla's loved football since she was five. I've, I've actually coached Layla football since she was five. And to put it frankly, it's just when it comes to football in our household, it's, it's me and Layla, we're, we're best football friends, that's it. And it was the one time we went over, just the two of us, where we could actually watch the game. And we never got that chance. And how is she now? She's okay, actually. She's doing well since she came home. She's actually... She's stronger than me anyway. She just says, look, Dad, don't worry about it. It's not your fault. It's not man's fault. We're just the victims of something and it's going to happen to other people and maybe someday we get to go again. And was she kind of recording the trip on the socials on the way along, you know, oh, Instagram and friends, she, Snapchat yeah, or whatever, showing the whole journey? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And the tickets that we got, it was the, probably the closest we've ever been to the pitch and, you know, she was really within touch and distance of what we would have been within touch and distance of it and that's why I was trying to be a bit I wouldn't say forceful at the ticket office, but I was trying to just, could you just please, we, we've come all this way and unfortunately club policy just can't do it, which is understandable. There was people only doing their jobs. And does she so, still um, play herself? No, she stopped playing. She stopped playing football. Layla, uh, Layla's had a good year this year with other um, sport. Layla, uh, as I was telling your researcher there, Layla, Layla represented Ireland last year in basketball. She was an international, and she's a current under-17 international player now as well. And, it would have been a nice ending to have a good year for... Oh, right, yeah, how did they get on? Well, they played in the Four Nations. They came second to, to, to England. Right, so... so um, that, that was last April. And thankfully, going into this season, she's continued her good form on the court and she's she's a member of the Under-17 Irish Squad Academy now. So, all is good on basketball. Yeah, how's that looking at the moment? For Leila? Yeah, no, I mean, for, for, for women's basketball at that age group oh, in general. Oh, basketball in... My wife would be the expert in the house at this, but since since Layla start and my other daughter start playing basketball, it, it's definitely becoming more popular in this country. There's no doubt about it. Right. How did the game go in the end, by the way? Was it a cracker or not? The Man United game, we didn't yeah. watch one bit of it. 
we didn't watch one bit of it. We just went home. And I was told by a fellow fan at the airport, trust me, you didn't miss much. And I said to him in a nice way, well, you try to tell that to your 16-year-old daughter. Right, what was the score? They lost 2-1. Which is kind of the norm these days for Man United. They don't win much anymore. Right, well, there's two shouts maybe would have made the difference. Well, we'll we'll never know, Colm. We'll never know. And would you would it put it off? Would it put you off going back in the future, or would would, would you go? Put, would you it go again? Put me off going back. We would go again. We would absolutely we would go again. It's just it still it still leaves a bad taste in the mouth. It's still a bit raw at the minute with both of us, you know. But life goes on, Colm. You know, we just have to we'll have to just onwards you know, and upwards. That's it. That's all we can do. The message I'm just trying to tell everyone is: I would just be very careful. Have a physical ticket in your hand. Or, some, or go with someone that has physical tickets for everybody because anything can happen with, with, with online scamming and, and whatever mate, hacking that goes on. Unfortunately, we were just the victims of it. All right. Official sources only. That's it. That's it. You said it. All right. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks for sharing well, that with us, that Thank word you, of warning. Adam. All right, we're back after this. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Colm O'Mungoyne here now. Everybody was watching uh, for Irish progress at the BAFTAs to see maybe how Killian Murphy and Andrew Scott would get on in the big award ceremonies. But a documentary that ended up winning uh, the prize at the BAFTA for Best Documentary was 20 Days in Mariupol because we're ten, or two years on from uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the city of Mariupol on the coast of the Azov Sea was absolutely devastated. The scenes in the documentary show it all, drone shots of devastation in the city, the scenes of grief, what hospitals were coping with as the net closed on the city. And uh, we're going to speak to uh, Olga who has spoken to us um, before over the last number of years because she is still in Mariupol and uh, speaking to us uh, on the line from there. Olga, good afternoon to you. Uh, and good afternoon. And how are you? Uh, I'm feeling better. Uh, thank you very much. I'm going to move to Istanbul in a month. And after two years uh, on from the invasion, living in, in Mariupol, why now? Why did you decide to move? Um, it, it was an, an obvious fact that I should move sooner or later. I was expecting um, my second apartment um, uh, should be rebuilt after it, it has been damaged during a war. And I was wait, waiting for a rebuilding process uh, and I sold it. And uh, with this money, I uh, am going to leave the Mariupol. And what do you hope to do in Istanbul? Um... Uh, personal relationships and uh, happy life, we will see. And what kept you in Mariupol for the last two years? Uh, Mariupol is, looks uh, looks uh, um, much better than a year ago. It uh, doesn't look so scary. Uh, there is a lot of uh, rebuilding process. Uh, Russians in, invest a lot of money in Mariupol, uh, so... It doesn't look like uh, they are going to leave from here, but we w- we don't know what will happen. And and your mother is still in Mariupol, is she? Yes, she uh, she will be here. And how will it feel to leave and go to Istanbul with family still in Mariupol? I will be uh, very much worried about her, but uh, I need to live my life normally and not just existing. And what is it like day to day living in Mariupol? Uh, 
Uh, I'm uh, busy with uh, learning uh, Turkish language and uh, uh, do some of my personal things. Uh, go to gym uh, and uh, atmosphere is better uh, than before. But uh, still, uh, we all feel the chronic stress and chronic feeling of tension and ab- absolutely absence of uh, feeling of safety. Anyway, we uh, hear sounds of explosions last year. A Russian military plane crashed near the Mariupol. And in January, uh, Ukrainian hit the uh, Russians, uh, position, military positions of Russians. So uh, 50 uh, military uh, has been killed and uh, around 20 has been injured. And what's the security situation in the city? Is there an obvious presence of, of Russian troops there or the... Uh the police that, a that, 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 Russian, Russian military but the police doesn't work uh, how it should because uh, there is a lot of uh, workers from uh, eastern uh, territories of Russia not from Russia itself but uh, from Azerbaijan or some uh, Asian countries and uh, those men are very annoying uh, to women and aggressive to women and in uh, city news uh, we uh, uh, read that uh, woman has been attacked here, woman has been attacked there, so there is no safety. So what do you do? Do you do you stay in your apartment? Do you are you afraid to go out after dark I, in that situation? I, I, mostly, I mostly stay at home. Uh, of course, I go somewhere, but I try not to come back home in a late evening time. So it's not very comfortable. And who is buying property in Mariupol at the moment? You say you you, you Russians, sold in a property. Russians, uh, mostly, mostly Russians, uh, and uh, um, my apartment has been damaged. Two bombs hit it there, and there were two holes in the walls. And I was uh, wasn't even didn't even expect that someone will buy it. But anyway, uh, a lot of people wanted to buy it, and mostly Russians. And I asked, why do you need it for? And they said, uh, in my old age, I want to have a real estate beside the sea. But now I want to rent it. And why are you picking to go to Turkey rather than going to somewhere else in Ukraine or even elsewhere in Europe? Um, I was thinking about uh, selling it to to my apartments. And theoretically, I... uh, could offer uh, to buy an apartment in Ukraine. Uh, But there's a problem how to uh, transport big sums of money through the border. Because everywhere military, 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 and uh, they can take from you anything that you want, that they want, your computer, your money, your car or anything. And so how are you going to, how are you going to manage to, to get to Turkey, to bring your money, your belongings, everything Mm, I will uh, bring my cash. Uh, I don't have too much cash, uh, but uh, some cash I have. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, uh, it's legally to transport uh, ten thousand of dollars uh, through the border. It's legally. And what about? I can do it. If it and, and what about travel? But, Did you have to get special permission to leave, or are you allowed? You know, come and go I, freely no, within I, the Russian-occupied area. I worry. Out uh, this trip uh, because uh, I haven't um, 
I haven't go to Russia for now. Uh, they um, before uh, they um, checked if, uh, passports and phones and all the per personal informations. And um, now I have two passports, Ukrainian and Russian, because without Russian passport, I wouldn't be able to sell the real estate. And without a Russian passport, I wouldn't be able to come home if something will happen with my mother, because Ukrainians cannot go to Russia only through the Moscow airport and also the filtration procedure when people are sleeping on the floor in airport for three days and they check their phones and if they will see Ukrainian flag or something, they might uh, say that uh, they are not uh, letting the person in the Russia. So all of so the... This document, so, so the area yeah, you're living in that, that Russia says is now part of Russia, although that's not recognised uh, internationally, obviously, they are obliging you, making you get a Russian passport if you want to do official business. Is that it? Yes, yes, yes. How does that feel? Uh, for a week, my legs just uh, couldn't go to the uh, police uh, department to uh, apply for passport. I just uh, and all the people just don't want to do this. That, but we have to. We cannot do uh, um, receive medical help. Uh, cannot do anything without this paper. And I don't think uh, for myself that I received a, a Russian citizenship. It's not a citizenship. It's additional paper to do what I need to receive money and to have a possibility to come home and even to receive even to receive medical help is it you need you need yes. to have yes. you need to have gone and applied for russian paperwork yes. my mother has a diabetes and uh, um, they don't give her medicines for free without this uh, passport and have you talked to other people in mariupol what's the what's the feeling about that amongst all of the people you know uh, most people are uh, not satisfied with the situation. They said that uh, there were no problems before the war. Why did they do that? They uh, destroyed the city and uh, people are not satisfied with Russia. But uh, <laughs> mostly people try to uh, keep silence because it's very dangerous now. <laughs> And there has been quite a, a lot of footage put on social media. You said that, you know, Russia had invested in the city, was it was doing uh, building in the city, but there have been worries about the quality of the building, how good the building work has been. People have been worried about uh, the... I know that about my apartment, uh, they uh, uh, make a rebuilding on the surface and uh, they, all the apartments inside the building are burnt. They don't um, um, make a rebuilding inside the apartments, only um, on the surface. And what about day-to-day -day life? You know, getting food, supply of food in shops, meeting up with people. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of shops, uh, supermarkets, uh, restaurants and uh, food delivery and the gym uh, and... Uh, uh, transport is is free and now city buses are free without money no no need to for buses and what about meeting with friends in in a cafe or in a bar can you speak freely about how you're feeling or are you nervous we, we try to speak very uh, quiet and at the moment you're, you're you're speaking to us from indoors you you would be concerned about speaking english on the telephone on the street yes, would you yes, yes. Yes, yes. I, I'd like to do it from my home. 
And what is and the 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 police force that are there? I mean, are there con- are, are there concerns about how they are treating people? Are there more prisoners in Mariupol now? I don't know about the prisoners, but I don't even see police cars here. Because uh, when Ukraine have been there, uh, there we could see a lot of uh, police cars on the streets. But now I don't. And are you aware of this um, movie that has won the, the BAFTA Best Documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol? Talking about the first, it shows the the, the first twenty days of the invasion. I, I, I haven't seen. I haven't seen, and um, I was very lucky that I was in a one square kilometer where when um, where nothing too bad has happened. So you, Mariupol is. Uh, uh, I I have seen these scary things mostly from the television, and um, now I found out that uh, for me it's very difficult to watch uh, movies about the war. It makes me worry. It makes me want to cry. <clears throat> when uh, you have seen the war yourself, uh, it feels different. And have many of your friends left? Uh, mostly all of them. And where have they gone to? Uh, Ireland, uh, Germany, uh, United States, France. And were the was it women left with children? What happened to men? Uh, women with children, with pets, uh, men who evacuated from Mari- uh, from Mariupol through the territory of Russia. They they have they had poss- a possibility to go to Europe, but men who um, has been in uh, the territory controlled by Ukraine, they cannot leave the country. And are you still in contact with your friends? Of course. And how are they, how do they, what are their feelings like abroad? I mean, they know things are bad back home. Uh, are they happy being abroad or do they also miss Ukraine in another way? So I have uh, one type of discomfort here, but I have home. And this uh, feeling of home uh, gives me a good feeling. But uh, I don't have uh, enough freedom. But they have freedom, but they don't have home. And uh, all of them miss uh, their home very much. And what about the children? How are they feeling? Because obviously they're going to different countries where they, they may not speak the language. Is is it hard on Ukrainian children who have moved away from their home? I think for children it's easier than uh, for grown-ups to get used to a new country, a new mentality. And for your friends adjusting to life, bringing their families abroad, thinking about family they've left behind. What's it like for them? Uh, one of my friends uh, have left Mariupol and uh, she knew for sure that she won't see her mother uh, anymore because she was sick and she knew that she was dying and uh, she was sure that she, uh, she won't see her. And she died and she had a very big feeling of guilt. And what about your own feelings about your own mother who's going to be in Mariupol when you go to Istanbul? How does your mother feel about you leaving? Uh, she feels good and I also organised some help for her. Uh, I asked my friends to visit her and to stay in touch with me. So if any emergency situation will happen, I will come back. And you think, would it be difficult to come back uh, and see her or would it be easier because you're travelling on Russian documents? 
Uh, with the Russian documents, it, it would be easier. So it doesn't mean that I have lost a Ukrainian passport, and now I have uh, two passports, both uh, Ukrainian and Russian. And are there many Ukrainians that, that have travelled to Istanbul? Is there now a Ukrainian community there, or was there always a Ukrainian community there? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I uh, communicate with Turkish people. I uh, have uh, some special love to this country, so I'm learning the language now. I want to have a Turkish language as my fourth language. So I speak fluently three languages. Uh, I have friends from Ukraine there, and I also have Turkish friends there. And I like uh, I like uh, the mixture of uh, modern uh, culture and Eastern culture in Istanbul. Well, Olga, we wish you all the very best uh, with your new life, and I hope your mother enjoys good health until you're able to return to Mariupol, maybe on a more permanent basis under better circumstances and uh, that your friends look after her and that all goes well for you. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks for talking to us. Okay, (laughs) you're welcome. Okay, we're back in a moment. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Column here, 51551 for your text. Joe at rte.ie for your emails. Now, we said at the start when we started talking to Brian that there was a delay on the line. There sure is. Here we are an hour later. Brian, we're finally through to you. How are you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The patience is great. It's OK. All right. No worries. Look, thanks very much for uh, for hanging on and thanks very much for uh, for getting in contact with us as well. As we no, said at the start, absolutely. you were listening to Elaine on yesterday's programme and it, it, you remembered your I own was. experience in, in Peru in 2010. What happened? Yeah, um, I decided to uh, travel to South America. Um, just, I was a... I travelled alone, so I, I was, it was fine. I, I was a very confident guy, so that didn't really bother me. And um, I done Argentina and Brazil and Chile and all these places, but I just kind of got settled in Peru. And I got a job. I was working in a bar stroke um, hostel, and everything was fine. Great, two days a week off, fine. Never worked a Sunday. Typical Irishman, and um, yeah, one night uh, I I was walking by in the bar, and I took a very, very, very bad seizure. So, and can you describe uh, what it was like? You were standing behind the bar, pulling a pint one minute, but do you have any recollection of what happened? Yeah, um, I've had uh, I'd say about four major ones since maybe five. Yeah, the fifth one was kind of it wasn't too bad, but. Um, I, I got pins and needles in in both my uh, my hands and my wrist, and after that, I, did, I don't remember anything. And the only way I could articulate it really was that the CCTV that my boss had on in in the bar that I was walking and showed me exactly what happened. So, and can you describe uh, what happened in the in the CCTV? I mean, you felt pins and needles in in, in your hands yeah, and wrists, yeah. but but according to the CCTV, what happened next? And um, what what happened was uh, well, uh, thankfully I had the wherewithal to um I took down the the two points that I was bringing to a customer, and then I I just went down and had a seizure because if I'd, I had a seizure with the glass in my hands, God knows what would happen. So I spent a bit, about about three or four days just convalescing, and and I flew home. 
And did you have any idea? Because, I mean, you'd been on the road a while, obviously, you know, traveling, socializing, working in a bar, probably plenty of late nights. So did did you kind of just put it down to exhaustion? Well, that's what I thought. But when I thought, look, uh, even all my friends were like saying, you know, you put a Facebook uh, profile up and you're in Bolivia and your mates are going, Brian, you, you... you need to come home. These are mad places you're visiting. Not to say I'm bad about Bolivia, but so I went home and um, the CCTV, I was able to show to my doctor and then he sent me to the neurology department in Hospital, and it took me maybe nine months to see them. Nine months, because that's what Elaine, you probably, that's, you probably picked up on that from Elaine yesterday. Yeah. So she, she went to hospital and then she was expecting yeah. to be told in February that her, her um, ETC, is that the name of the, the scan, was imminent, but yeah, absolutely. It, it turned yeah. out she's going to have to wait 10 months for it. Yeah, I had, to, I, had to, I had to wait nine months. And now this was going back, Elaine, that very, uh, very young, like I was 31 when that happened and I got home at Christmas, Christmas week. And I didn't see, I didn't see them till early October, mid mid October. And had you, you you mentioned it? Did you go on to Bolivia after you'd been in Peru? No, well, I was. I or was did you just come straight me. home? No, no. When I left um, Peru three or four days later, after kind of looking after myself, looking, um, I flew from. Uh, Lima to London. I spent a week in London and then I went to London uh, back to Dublin. So, but then I, 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 I actually had more um, uh, seizures since, so, and one of them was particularly bad. And have you been travelling on your own since? Um, not to that extent. Right. I, I still do, I, I still do uh, or in the way games and all, but the thoughts of, of doing Peru or India or, or anywhere like that again? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't because of the pure the fear of it. So your yeah, your confidence in in travelling has taken a knock. And the, the CCTV footage you spoke about that was sent to you by the hostel, hostel owner. Did it help the doctors? Yeah, uh, in their diagnosis, um, or was that just down to the scan alone? That, that was sent. That was sent to my uh, private GP, and then he sent it on to my uh, neurologist in Telehospital. And she's seen it and she had a, a really good look at it and then done all the tests and now I'm on, fortunately, I'm on medication now for the rest of my life. Right. And it's epilepsy, is it? Yeah, yeah. Full scale, yeah. And did you have to, I mean, did you have to try different types of medication or was the yeah, first one you were prescribed? No, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. So what, yeah. what did you have to go through before you hit on the one that seemed um, you? Uh, the, the medication that the neurologist in Tala put me on was was very overpowering for me. Uh, look, every medication is different for every uh, different person. I found it. I was walking around in the days. My eyes were black. I was just like, I, I don't know, they, they don't agree with me. And then they put me on to another me, uh, medication. And then finally, they've uh, had me on a, a med now that that, that that kind of works, you know. Right. And how how's life work-wise and... You know, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm walking away. I just started a full time role. I, it's physically, it's, but again, I had, to, I had to be honest with them in the interview. I had to tell them. 
But obviously, it had, had no, had, it didn't have any effect on on the decision that they, you know, in them taking you on. But I mean, did it knock your confidence going into job interviews? You know, you'd be kind Absolutely. of thinking about, I'm going to have to do a medical and declare this. Yeah, How is it going yeah. to affect me? Well, look, I, I didn't mind being honest with them. Look, at the end of the day, I'm not. I knew I was. I'd have to tell them anyway. But, but it is. You're nervous for the first five minutes. Then you sit down, and it's not the first question they ask you when you're being interviewed for a job. It's and I had a kind of. I built up a, a small relationship with them regarding training and stuff like that. So I knew, I knew the management system, and I knew the, the guys there. But. They obviously didn't know about the epilepsy, so I have to be honest and, and, and tell them. And would you still and get I, seizures? Oh, um, the last one, the last really, really bad one was in Galway. I went to Galway. Um, do you remember that forced break of lockdown when everybody just went everywhere? It was great. It was like Christmas Day. And I was waiting on the train in, in Galway and I took a seizure. And I don't remember anything about the seizure. I don't remember prior. All I remember is waking up in the back of an ambulance with a nurse and a doctor beside me. And I broke my shoulder. And I was in hospital for seven days in Galway. And you know the way, Brian, you know, there's de- defibrillators on the on the wall of, of, of plenty of places now, workplaces, yeah. and people are trained up on them. I mean, the education bit in workplaces, yeah. in public places... Do yeah. people know enough about it? Because there's still these myths going around of trying to put their ha- people, you know, sh- they shouldn't, but people still are of the belief they should try and remove someone's tongue from their mouth and all of that. Do you think there's enough information yeah. out, just basic protocols of, of dealing with somebody who's having a seizure and how to make them safe? Um, I, um, I have friends and like uh, real, my friends are amazing and I've told, and my family, I t- they all know, like, so we're out on a night out or going to a gig or anything. They'll know, they'll know what to do if that happens to me. But I don't know whether that kind of education is is across the board, in particular the like workplaces, schools, colleges. Do people really know like what happens when somebody takes a really bad seizure? What are they supposed to do? You know, some people might run away from it. Some people might take control, might be educated. Everybody's different, you know. Right. Well, we have a bit to go. Listen, Brian, thanks very much for making contact because even your story alone will help uh, raise public awareness of it. And we hope, obviously, for Elaine's sake, that uh, yeah. she gets the diagnosis as soon as possible and gets on, on the Absolutely. road to recovery. Uh, and, you know, I suppose what you're telling us there shows there's there's life after the initial diagnosis and the confidence and everything else does recover with the right help. Yeah, yeah. And okay. it's, it, it's, it, it's with... The help of your doctors, but most importantly, it is it's the help of your friends and your family. All right. Okay. Well, listen. Look after yourself. Thanks, Tom. All right. We're back in a moment. Appreciate it. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe Duffy. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Colm O'Mungain here. Five one five five one for your text. Lisa Bracken. Good afternoon to you. Hi, Colm. How are you? Good. Uh, you have a concern about, you know, it's a, it's a good thing that people raise awareness about dementia, but how some people are doing it on social media is a concern of yours. Yeah, that's right. Um, Colin, I just find that uh, social media at the moment is saturated with 
um, videos of people kind of documenting the journey of dementia of their loved one. Um, and obviously people with dementia are extremely vulnerable and couldn't possibly consent to being splashed all over the internet. And I, I just think it's really, really unfair. I think it's wrong, you know. And is it for anyone who's unfamiliar with this kind of content, Lisa, is it coming from Ireland? Is it coming from abroad? Is it a kind of just a feature of social media across the world? It's everywhere. It's Ireland. Uh, a lot of it in America and right across the board, uh, the UK. Um, I've seen videos practically from every country, really, you know. Um, it seems to be building up in Ireland. It wasn't so much. It was more an American thing for a while. Um, and then it... Uh, it's become, you know, bigger even in Ireland. But I just think it's wrong on every imaginable level. I think that, you know, a person with dementia is just so very vulnerable. Um, it shows uh, any of them that I've seen anyway, it shows them kind of at their worst because, you know, as we all know or should know, people with dementia can become extremely distressed, uh, disorientated, upset and not like the person that they once were at all, you know. Right. So you're, you're not talking about, you know, somebody documenting life with a parent or that kind of thing. You're, you're, you're talking about intimate uh, footage of people within the privacy of their own homes, maybe in a state of distress. Are, are you talking about, you know, people who are who are in the middle of changing clothes and that kind of thing, invading the privacy of people? The one that really got to me and prompted me to email was um, one, I, I won't mention a name, obviously, um, where the the person is documenting her grandmother's journey with dementia. And she has, seems to be a camera constantly on this poor lady's face. But she was, And the face isn't um, blurred or anything, is it? Oh, no, no, no. It's absolutely apparent. There's nothing blurred about it. Um, and all her identifying details, you know, her name and the general area she's from um, and kind of her family, you know. Um, right. But th- this video was where the granddaughter was um, demanding uh, that the grandmother, you know, it, it was time for the lady to have a shower. And that can be challenging for people with, with dementia without a camera, but you could clearly see the grandmother becoming right. really, really distressed. And you could see a kind of embarrassment embarrassment in her, column. but um, there was a camera on her and she was becoming distressed and yet the person filming her couldn't understand why she wasn't cooperating. Well, look, Lisa, I'm, I'm, any of us would. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid the clock is against us. It's coming up on, on three o'clock there, but thanks for highlighting that with us. Uh, it's something we might indeed come back to, but uh, thanks for joining us with that and raising awareness about indeed your own concerns there today. That's our lot for today. Caro O'Hare was on sound. The broadcast coordinator was Shane Galvin and the producer today was Nadine Maloney. Ray Darcy's next. 0818 715 815 stays open until 3.15pm or email joe at rte.ie.